Isaiah 46. We will finish tonight the first third of the last half. Okay. 39 books in the first half, 27 books in the last half. Just as there are 39 books in the Hebrew Scriptures and 27 books in the New Testament. What a coincidence. And uh, we're now coming down to the end of the first third. And the last 27 chapters you can divide into three equal parts of nine chapters each, 27 chapters in all. And uh, the conclusion of each one of these becomes very clear, as you'll see when we get to the end tonight, that each one of these sections ends very similarly. So it's obviously well organized in the mind of the Spirit of Christ as He speaks to us through Isaiah. And I'm excited to share these things with you tonight, but first let's pause and pray just one more time. Lord Jesus, I pray that You would make Your book alive to us. May these words not be on page, but may they be written, inscribed on our hearts by Your hand, Holy Spirit. And I pray that You will reach in and shake us up, open our eyes, but most of all, Lord, as we go through these things, each one of us, Father, may we be brought to the place of delighting in Your consolations and help us to even understand what all that means. Give us Your Word now, Father as you so love to do, and we so love to receive, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 94.19 When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Your consolations delight my soul. Now we think about the word consolation a little differently, I think. We tend to hear the word consolation and think, oh, the consolation prize, right? Thanks for playing. You have some lovely parting gifts for you as you exit. And it's the, it's the prize for the loser. You know, it's not really what the, what the winner is looking for. It's the consolation. Well, God's consolations are different than that. In fact, the Hebrew word that's translated consolations in Psalm 94, 19 is tanhumim. Tanhumim comes from the root word nahum. Nahum. Nahum, one of the prophets that we will eventually get to, Lord willing. Uh, and the word Nehum means comfort, but the word Tanhumim is an extension of that. It's comforts plural. But what's great about the word, translated consolations, is it implies breathing deeply. Breathing deeply. It's like coming home at the end of a long day, but you finally got everything done, and you can set the worries aside. You sit down on the couch, and you just go... That's the consolation that delights us in Jesus. When all of our worries are multiplying and we pause for a moment and we recognize that God is on His throne, that Jesus really does have His hand in all things and that He's got it, we can, in those moments, go, I delight in your consolations. Around the time of Jesus' birth... There were those in Israel who were looking for consolation. In fact, we know of a man named Shimon. Your Bibles may translate the name Simeon. Simeon in Luke chapter 2. He was there at the temple and 41 days, to be precise, after the birth of Jesus, Jesus was brought up to the temple to be presented as was customary, as was required by the Lord. 
And as he comes up to the temple, well, he was brought up by Mary and Joseph. We're told in Luke 2.25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Shimon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. You've probably heard that before. Looking for the consolation of Israel. It's one of those verses we skip right on over and go on. But wait a minute, wait a minute. What's the consolation of Israel? Is that like their parting gift? Was Shimon there at the temple thinking, well, we blew it, but we got to get something out of this deal. Hope we get a consolation prize. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. How did Shimon know to be looking for this consolation? I would say to you that he knew somehow that comfort follows adversity. That Simeon, Shimon, knew that God had promised consolations for Israel. That Shimon had read the latter half of the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 begins, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 40 through 66, these last 27 chapters, are called by many the book of consolations. The old rabbis refer to it as the book of consolation. If there's any one place in the Hebrew Scriptures to go for the comfort of God to be spoken over His people Israel, it's Isaiah 40 through 66. I'm convinced that that's exactly what Shimon was looking for. He had read of the consolations of Israel. He heard the Lord. Say in Isaiah 49.13, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His affliction, uh, on His afflicted. Comfort my people, says your God. And everyone who has come to know in the last 2,000 years, every single person who has come to know Jesus Christ has already received the consolation. We've already stepped into the place of His compassion, of His greatness. And gang, from here on out, good news, you're only going to know God's comfort in greater abundance as you walk forward in faith. That's great. You don't get less. You get more. More of His compassion, more of His grace, more of His comfort day by day. Now that doesn't mean life's going to get easier. In fact, life may get harder. We talked about the affliction sometimes that were dealt in life on Sunday. But the truth is that with those afflictions comes a greater comfort. And as you walk in in life with Jesus, the greater the affliction, the greater the comfort that He provides. So that we truly can be standing in the midst of affliction and people wonder, why is it that you look so at peace? I know the comfort of Jesus. I delight in His consolations. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And these are the promises He gives us. Not promised for an easy life, but promised for a life where His comfort is my right hand. And at the Messiah's appearing, and this is what Shimon was looking for, he was looking for the consolation of Israel. He was looking for the appearing of Messiah. Because Isaiah makes it very clear from chapter 40 on, he makes it clear that the consolation of Israel is Messiah. That Christ is the consolation. I don't know if you've noticed, but I, we have a Jewish friend who, who attends on Sundays often. You'll know he's the one wearing the yarmulke. And his name is, ironically, Isaiah. And I've met with Isaiah. I coughed with Isaiah once. He's asked, we're, we're going to meet and have lunch probably next week, maybe the week after again. I love that he's showing up. He said something that kind of struck me on Sunday. 
He came up afterwards. He said, "Hey, there's something I, I want to talk with you about." And I, I, he's a very serious Bible student. Studies like crazy. That's why he comes. He, he's found this Christian church of all places that's teaching in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. So he figures, as a student of the Word, he wants to hear what does this guy have to say. What do these people teach here? And so he came up and he said, "I'd really like to talk to you." He said, "Now I don't believe Christ. I don't believe in Christ." but I'd like to meet you and talk about these other things. And I, I, it just struck me. And I'm going to ask him when I see him next, you said you don't believe Christ. Do you believe in Messiah? Do you believe in what the Hebrew Scriptures, your Scriptures teach about Mashiach? Because Mashiach is Christ. Christ is just the Greek name. We don't even need to use the Greek name Christos. If you don't want to, we'll use Mashiach. Do you believe in Mashiach? And my assumption is he'll probably say, I don't believe in... Yeshua as Mashiach. That's okay, give it time, you will. <laughs> you just stay in the Word. And you're going to come to that point. I, I pray that He does. And I totally lost my place here. But <laughs> at Messiah, Messiah and Israel. See, here's the deal. Shimon was looking for Messiah to come. The consolation of Israel is the coming of Israel's Christ. And so that's why Shimon was so excited when he saw Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit tapped him. In fact, we're, we're told that he had the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit. And Shimon saw Jesus, 41 days old, and said, the consolation of Israel is here. He's here. And he went up and takes him, and you can read it in Luke chapter 2, he, he begins to break out in this marvelous prayer, this blessing over the infant Jesus. Shimon knew. Shimon in that moment could breathe deeply. Consolation of the Lord. He knew Isaiah 52 verse 9, no doubt, which says, Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He has brought His consolation right to Jerusalem, which is what He said He would do. So Shimon knew that. And there's something in this gang that the consolation of Christ in its fullness comes at the consummation of the end of the age. When the Bible says, when Paul says, all things are summed up in Jesus. It's all going to come to a head, and guess what? The head is Christ. Our consolation is the consummation in Christ Jesus. But sadly, sadly there are so many in Israel today Sadly, there are so many people in all of humanity today who have a strange way of trying to get to the consummation of all things. What people look for, for comfort. And the Lord begins to speak to this in Isaiah 46, verse 1. Bel has bowed down, Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. Bible students remember, Babylon was the seat of idolatry. Always has been. Always had been all the way up to it falling. The seat of idolatry in the world. In Isaiah 46, the Lord begins to look at and talk to directly Babylon. In fact, the prophecy that we are just starting to step into here in the first two verses is very descriptive of exactly what would happen when Cyrus the Persian comes swarming into with his army into Babylon and wipes it out. But before I get there, understand that Babylon is where idolatry began. It's where it started. It's really what Jerusalem is to Jesus, to the Lord God. Babylon is to Satan. 
If Satan has a capital on planet earth, it is Babylon. I believe the Bible tells us it will be again Babylon. As we see in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18, talking about the fall of Babylon as a future event, and I believe Antichrist is going to set up his rule, his authority right there in Babylon. Some have said, well, Rick, don't you think perhaps that that could be America that's being talked about in Revelation 18? It's an interesting parallel. I tend to lean more toward the literal and think, no, it'll be actual Babylon. But the birthplace of paganism and rebellion and idolatry in the world was Babylon. We can trace it all the way back to its founder, a man whose name was Nimrod. Nimrod, actually the name Nimrod, check this out, it means the rebel. Some Bible scholars think perhaps Nimrod wasn't even his name. Perhaps it was a title that he chose for himself. I am the rebel. Genesis chapter 10 verse 8 says, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod, and he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The word before there indicates against. Rebelling against the Lord. A mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And Erech and Akkad and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. Shinar is Chaldea, Babylonia. With Babylon at the center. Babel, the Tower of Babel, built right there in Babylon. Some of you know this, that Saddam Hussein was trying to get a, a whole project started to rebuild Babel. The Tower of Babel. The gates to the city of Babylon already have been rebuilt. Babylon itself is being. There, is, there are billions of dollars that have been set aside for the rebuilding of the city of Babylon as a tourist attraction in Iraq. Interesting. But for all that, Nimrod built Babel. Babel meaning gateway to God. Or gateway to the gods. And it was that whole belief that we can build our way up to the heavens. And we can build this monument to ourselves. And there, Nimrod kicked off idol worship and pagan mysticism. It can be directly traced back to this man and his in-your-face rebellion of the Lord God. All Babylonian paganism is rooted in Nimrod's rejection of God. So here we are in verse 1 of chapter 46, and we're told of the two chief idols of Babylon, Bel and Nebo. Bel is actually a word probably related to Baal which simply means in those languages, Lord. In the Chaldean language, Bel probably just meant Lord, but it was a moniker that spoke of the primary god of Babylon, which was Marduk. Marduk was the Babylonian god of power. and He had all power. He was the omniscient or omnipotent god of Babylon. Nebo is the son of Bel, or the son of Marduk, And he was the Babylonian god of wisdom. Now the Greeks had Zeus and Hermes. You know, the Romans, they had Jupiter and Mercury, father and son, gods that would exist together, the father and the son. Isn't that interesting? You ever find it curious that so many world religions, and especially uh, pagan and idolatrous religions, have a father-son imitation built into them? And when you hear something like that, you can respond in one of two ways. You can go, oh no, that undermines our faith. Or you can go, oh no, Satan's a counterfeiter. (laughs) Remember, Satan, a created being, would have been in heaven as a created being and would have seen and been aware of and recognized Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Long before the world was created. 
So of course paganism would involve father-son counterfeits. Imitations. Why? Because Satan knows that counterfeits are great tools of confusion and deception. Mess people up a bit. Oh, I know, you've got your, you know, you have God the Father and Jesus the Son in your religion. That's fine, we have that over here too. We just have different names, but they're all the same God. And they're not the same God. John wrote in 1 John 4.15, Get this, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. The point is not that there is a Son of God. The point is that the Son of God is named and His name is Jesus. Not Nebo. Not any other name. Not Hermes. Not Mercury. Who are lesser gods, by the way, than the, than the main Father God in all of those religions. Jesus is not a lesser God. Jesus is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Notice also that Bel and Nebo were false gods of power and of wisdom. Huh. Wow, well, they're, they're being worshipped in America today. Power and wisdom. You know, strength and knowledge. These two things are, are part of uh, American culture to gain power. We worship the powerful. We do. We are impressed by strength. And we are blown away by knowledge and wisdom. And so these two things have become gods in every world religion. And in every culture on earth, the power, the gods of power and wisdom. And what's interesting is, by contrast, Jesus becomes the suffering servant of Isaiah. Jesus is the one, our glorious God, who was born not into power and glory, but born into poverty. And He lived in obscurity. And He died in humility. What other God's done that? What other God set aside His power, laid aside His glory to put on flesh and blood and present Himself as a human being, just like the rest of us. Jesus invites the weak and the foolish. Look around. (laughs) And no offense. But listen, Ted Turner called Christianity a religion for losers. He's right. Again, look around. Gang, we are. What, you, you don't like being a loser? I don't like being a loser. Good, because that's where we are. That's, see, now go back to what I said before, the consolation prize. Exactly. The loser gets the consolation prize. It is the prize of Christ. The consolation is for losers. And it's hard for the self-made person to step into the place of recognizing weakness and foolishness and our need for a Savior. As long as I'm strong, I don't need help. As long as I'm knowledgeable, I don't need to go to Him for answers. It is in my foolishness, it is in my weakness that I'm able to fall on my knees and say, Jesus, I need You. Which is why Jesus said, by the way, it is hard for the rich man to enter heaven. Not because having riches is a sin, but because there are few people, I know a few, but there are few people who really handle it with the kind of humility that allows them to say, well, yeah, I have this, but it's only because God has chosen to bless. The self-made man has trouble seeing his need or her need, self-made woman, for a Savior. Verse 2 tells us they stooped over. Speaking of Bel and Nebo, they stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Now, how ironic is this? 
What's happening here in verses 1 and 2 vividly pictures what happened when Persia overran Babylon. As Cyrus came in, people began to grab hold of their household gods, put them on carts and wagons, and drag them out of the city into safety. You see what happens here? It's ironic that the gods couldn't save the people. The people had to save their gods. (laughs) It's just completely flipped upside down. That should tell somebody something. And by the way, at the end of verse 1, the translators added the word beast because the context indicates that the people were grabbing their household gods, putting them on either on animals' backs or on carts, and these beasts of burden were having to drag these heavy gold and silver and wood and stone idols, drag them out of the city, so they were for beasts of burden. But the word beast is not there. Read verse 1 without the word beast and consider this. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary. How much do we carry that is burdensome. What are you dragging around right now? Are you trying to carry God or does your God carry you? Are you lugging around some weighty thing? In Christianity, you might say, well, we don't carry around God. Some do. We have a word for it, religion. The burdens, church attendance. Okay, I got that down. Sunday, Wednesday, check, check. Bible reading every day. Got to have my devotional time. Check, check, check. You know, have I prayed today? Have I thought, oh, I'm, I'm such a, oh, the burden. <laughs> and we can try and carry around God. And all the while God's going, how about you let me do the carrying? Because when it all comes down and when the enemy invades your life, you don't carry me out of the city, I carry you out. I am your strength. Are you burdened by a religious oppression? Man, if you are, breathe deep the consolation of Christ. Take a deep breath of His comfort and let Him be God and you just be His son, His daughter. 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Now, I know some Christian brothers and sisters might say, Rick, I believe in God. I do. I love Jesus, but I'm still feeling so burdened. Listen to this. Peter said, cast your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. How often do we cast our anxiety at Him instead of on Him? You know, what happens is we try to carry our stuff, carry our burdens, handle the hassles, and it gets heavy and weighty until we're crushed under the weight, and then we turn and we blame God for not picking it up. The whole time He's going, look, you're the one who wants to carry this. Cast your burdens on the Lord, not at Him. Don't turn around and start chucking this stuff at Him. This is your fault. How could you do this to me? Oh, I don't believe this, Lord. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Cast your burdens on the Lord. Well, the Babylonians weren't doing that, and so they had to grab their gods and try to save them. Verse 3 going on, the Lord turns His direction, His attention to Israel, says, listen to me. O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age I will be the same and even to your graying years I will bear you. I have done it and I will carry you and I will bear you and I will deliver you. Notice all the word plays in that. You have been you, From the day you were born I have borne you. 
From the day you were delivered, I have been your deliverer. I will deliver you even when you're old. I will bear you even when you're in your graying years, he said. And I, I read that and I thought, wow, have you noticed? Israel's getting a little gray these days. Wearing thin. Pressure bearing down from all sides. He's not going to turn His back on you. He's not going to cast you out. And notice, even in your graying years, which means Israel, from the time you were born to the very end, when you are feeling old and gray, I will carry you. I will bear you. You know that's what happens when we're born again? When we are born again, we're born of the Spirit, that we might be born by the Spirit. Born of the Spirit, born again, born by the Spirit, carried by Him, carried along, even to our graying years. There is not a point where God says, alright, I've walked with you this far, you're on your own. This is not the relationship God wants to have with His people. Okay, i got new ones I'm raising up, get out of the house. No, He says, let's walk together to the very end, I will carry you. Turn over to... um, No, don't turn there yet. Just a minute. We'll go there in a minute. Look at verse 5. To whom would you liken me and make me equal or compare me that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place doesn't mean that it's solid in foundation. It just means it can't move. It's just sitting there. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east. That's Cyrus the Persian. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Listen to me, he says, you stubborn minded who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. Now turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. God says, my righteousness is not far off. He says, listen to me, you stubborn-minded, while you all turn there, listen to me, you stubborn-minded, who are far from righteousness. Now, I don't know if you're there tonight, but have you ever felt far from righteousness? You're just coming out of some major stumble, some stupid sin choice, and you're going, how am I ever going to get back? I am so far from God right now. And God says that, yeah. So pay attention to me. Listen to me, you who are far from righteousness. And he says then, I will bring my righteousness near. I'll bring my righteousness near. Do you realize, gang, that your righteousness, God's righteousness for you, is as close as the next word out of your mouth. That's how close he is. 
When he says, I will bring my righteousness near, listen to this, Paul says, Romans 10, verse 1, and I remind you, Romans 10 is smack dab in the middle of Romans 9 and 11. Kind of cool how that works. (laughs) Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all about Israel. Paul is describing and explaining to the church what God's plan is for Israel. Not a plan that is over, past, and done, but a plan that is ongoing and will be fulfilled. And read those nine chapters, and I don't see how any believing Christian can say God is through with the Jew. But here in chapter 10, right in the middle, still talking about, thinking about Israel and the Jewish people, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. What do you mean, Paul? Well, think about what God said back in Isaiah 46, 13. I bring near my righteousness. And here's the problem that Israel had from the beginning. When they received the law, they thought it was about their righteousness. Oh, okay, so if we do these things, we become righteous, and therefore we can be with you, God. So we've got to keep the law. And Paul tells us back in Romans 5, the only reason he gave the law was so that they would see how unrighteous they really are. Why would you do that, Lord? So they would realize it is my righteousness that they need, desperately. My righteousness. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Wonderful. Look down in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth. And in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in what? Righteousness. Righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness, not yours. You believe in Christ and He, He gives you His righteousness. And with the mouth He confesses resulting in salvation. That's just so powerful. Now back in Isaiah 46, and I just wanted you to read that. I know many of you have heard that before. But in Isaiah 46, the beauty of God who who carries His people is that also while He carries His people, listen, while He carries them, He transfers His righteousness onto them. When God is busy carrying you through the afflictions and trials and tribulations of your life, at the same time something's happening to you, carried, born in the arms of Christ, you are receiving His righteousness. You can't be held by Christ and not get His righteousness all over you. And that's what's going on. And the Lord says, I bring my righteousness near, and He does it through Christ. Look again at the end, the last verse there, last part of the verse of chapter 46, verse 13. I will, my salvation will not delay. He says, I will grant salvation in Zion. Zion, what's that? Jerusalem. My salvation is going to be granted right there. And then my glory will spread out from there for Israel. Gang, in Zion, where Christ was crucified. In Zion, where Jesus resurrected. In Zion, where Jesus will return and establish His kingdom. In Zion. And that's what the Lord is saying. I'm going to grant salvation there. The word salvation in the Hebrew, remember what that word is, anybody? Jesus. Yesha. In the Hebrew. Every time you see the word salvation in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it is the name Jesus. 
And so he says, I will grant Jesus in Zion. I will bring my salvation to you in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what he did. Now in chapter 47, he really turns his eye to Babylon. In fact, I would call chapter 47, Bummer for Babylon. Begin in verse 1. Come and sit down in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil, strip off the skirt, uncover the leg, cross the rivers. Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your shame also will be exposed. I will take vengeance and will not spare a man. Verse 4, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. This is verse 4, Israel responding to what God is doing to Babylon. And then verse 5, the Lord again picks up and says, Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the Queen of Kingdoms. What he's talking about here, back in verses 2 and 3, it indicates that the people of Babylon, who had known nothing but security and prosperity, were about to be reduced to slave labor and wandering. That's where he says, take millstones and grind meal, remove your veil and strip off the skirt. You're going to function as slaves. He says, uncover the leg and cross rivers. You're going to flee for your life and wander in distant lands, Babylonians. You who have been so well off, you who have been so affluent... And gang, this is where self-sufficiency lands a person. In wandering and lostness. The more self-sufficient you try to be, the more captive you will be to your own self-sufficiency. And the more lost you will find yourself. Why does Isaiah here call Babylon a virgin? O virgin daughter of Babylon. Not to be offensive, but it's because the city was thought to be impenetrable. Impregnable. The city that was so powerful, so strong, there's no getting past these walls and therefore, like a virgin, Madonna sings, you can't get in. And that's the description of the Lord. He says, you're not going to be called that anymore. You think that's what you are. He says, you're no longer going to be tender and delicate there at the end of verse 1. Why? Well, tender and delicate, Babylon, the lap of luxury and affluence. He describes her like this finally appointed virgin lady who is about to lose her entire fortune and her virginity overnight. And and you look further down, your nakedness will be uncovered and your shame will will also be exposed. Indicates that perhaps that there would be violence done to the women of Babylon. And perhaps there would be some horrific things that would go on as Babylon is wiped out. This finely appointed lady about to lose her entire fortune. And I, I just had a picture in my mind as I was studying this of Lady Liberty, who's about to lose her entire fortune. I wonder. You know, some commentators are out, out there asking the question, is $4 a gallon gasoline the new normal? Are we just going to adjust to that? Is this economy ever really going to get rolling again back on its feet? Are we about to lose our entire fortune? Let me just ask you a question. What if America never recovers her former pride and glory? What if we're done? What if the best years are behind us? 
Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, I would hate to see America go down, but I'll tell you what, that doesn't change an iota of my faith in Jesus Christ. And there are people in third world countries, and there are people in nations around the world who are struggling, who are going from one, one meal to the next, one day to the next to survive, who love Jesus and walk and live in the consolations of Christ. So whether the economy recovers or not is truly beside the point. What we're looking for is to walk in the comfort of Jesus, whatever happens. To focus on Him. Uh, Again, I'm not meaning to worry anybody or bum anybody out. But I ask you again, do you carry God or does God carry you? And if God truly carries us, then hey, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be taken care of. Matthew 6.33 Now the Lord goes on with Babylon to describe four major sources of rebellion and corruption that ultimately brought this mighty nation to her knees. See if these sound familiar to you. Verse 6, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. Yet you said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow, nor no loss of children, but these two things will come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come on you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. You felt secure in your wickedness and and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. You have said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone. And destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. Stand fast now in your spells. And in your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth, perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. And there is sarcasm there on the words of the Lord. Two times the Lord points out there are those who say, I am, and there is no one besides me. Verse 10 he says it, verse 8 he says it. There's only one I am, (laughs) and you ain't him. But the voice rising up from Babylon is, I am, and there's no one else besides me. And only God can make that claim, right? In fact, He makes it three times in chapter 45. Chapter 45, verse 5, 6, and 21. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. He says, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. This, this spoken phrase over and over in this section of, of Isaiah. In this section, this first section where God is comparing the idols of man and the weak, flimsy religion of man and the truth of God. He says, there is no other God. There's no one besides me. I am it. I am the deal. What do you call anyone who says, I am, and there is no one besides me, any human being, what do you call them? Boy, those are good answers. (laughs) Can I get a pen? You call them an atheist. Problem number one in Babylon, atheism. 
I am, and there is no other. Atheism, based on its own claim, says that it all ends with me. I'm it. I'm as high as we go. There is nothing beyond me. There is no great out there. There is no God. There's just humanity and what we have risen to and what we can aspire to. By the way, why is it that the atheist doesn't find God? Interesting story. You may have heard the urban legend. Um, April 1961, Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin peered through the window of his spacecraft, Vostok 1. That's all true. But the urban legend is that he came back and he said, I don't see any God up here. Or that that was sent back down. I don't see any God up here. And everybody says, oh yeah, Yuri Gagarin said that. Well, actually, the truth is, a colleague and friend of his, Colonel Valentin Petrov, later insisted that Yuri never said that. He didn't make that claim. It was attributed to him because of a statement in an anti-religious speech given by Russian Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Khrushchev, before the Central Committee of the Soviet Communist Party, said this, quote, Why should you clutch at God? Look, Gagarin flew in space and saw no God. So that's where it comes from. But here's the answer to the question, why don't atheists find God? Atheists don't find God because you don't find what you're not looking for. And the Lord says very clearly in Jeremiah 23.19, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. If you really want to find God, you will. If you truly search for Him with all your heart, the Lord says, Hey, I'm an open book to you. I will be found by you if you are looking for me. But if you're not looking for me, you're not going to find me. I lost my keys the other day. And it took me all day to find them. You know why? Because for eight hours I didn't bother looking. In the last five minutes when I did look for them, I found them. (laughs) See, but if you don't look for the keys that you lost, you're not going to find them. It's kind of... I mean, you understand? I know it's a heavy concept to throw out on you tonight. But that's the deal. Yeah, I'm just saying. You know how many emails I got after Sunday? I'm just saying. It was really funny. You guys are cracking me up. You're killing me here. Atheism was a major tremor in the fall of Babylon. And the more atheism you see in a society gang the more that society becomes corrupt. Why is that? Because atheism corrupts society by limiting all power and wisdom to the level of the people in that society. That's why it's corrupting. You you can't go beyond. You can't get any higher than the mind of man. And if the mind of man is the best we have for America, we in big trouble, gang. Which leads us to the second Babylonian problem, intellectualism. Atheism, big problem. Intellectualism, look at verse 10. No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. Well, science and the academia and the scholarship, as people believe away, they knowledge away Christ. The Babylonians were at the height of academia in their age. They were students, they studied hard. Intellectualism, though, without any moral compass or absolutes, is dangerous. And you see it in one country's fall after another. Victor Buxbazen wrote, Babylon's wickedness expressed itself in the use of advanced technical and scientific knowledge, but without any moral consideration. Their engineering skills, their irrigation systems, their military organization, their architectural brilliance, 
as seen in their temples and palaces. Their works of art and their unexcelled legal system were the marvel and envy of the entire ancient world. And we dig things up today from Babylon that we look at and say, wow. I mean, they were doing things that would blow your mind. Buxfazen says, yet all this knowledge and wisdom used for selfish purposes and to enslave nations could only lead to disaster. In the end, Babylon went the way of all the great empires of ancient and more recent times. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. It is not through your wisdom and your smarts and your intelligence that you're going to get closer to God. It's that we come to Him recognizing, as Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge.